and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So uh, towards the end of last week, we had some really interesting news. We had two big deals in the financial services world. Well, one very big, which was the E-Trade uh, getting acquired by Morgan Stanley for $13 billion. And then a much smaller deal, but a very interesting deal, which was Lending Club acquiring uh, Radius Bank for $185 million. So very different in terms of the scale of these two acquisitions. Um, but telling, I think, a very interesting story. So I'm actually much more interested in and I find the Lending Club Radius Bank acquisition much more compelling uh, than the Morgan Stanley E-Trade acquisition. So what we're seeing in the world of financial services, whether you're a bank, a money manager, which is basically what Morgan Stanley is, they're an investment management company, is you are seeing fintechs, and we've covered this many, many times on the show, you are seeing all these different sorts of fintechs, whether it's SoFi paying $400 million to sponsor uh, what the LA Rams uh, football stadium to uh, Robinhood to, you know, all these challenger banks. And what they're trying to do is uh, basically give away technology tools for free or raise crazy rounds or spend crazy money on branding and promotion promotion uh, promotion sponsorships or, or you know different types of user acquisition initiatives um, we've seen just uh, you know regular savings at two percent uh, interest just to keep your money with them, right? You've seen crazy savings, uh, promotionary rates and all these kinds of things. Those have gone down a little bit. You're seeing these fintechs uh, have a land grab to acquire users, whether they are literally giving away money, literally lighting money on fire uh, from a marketing standpoint, or literally buying products or creating functionality and just giving that away and not charging for it, right? And that's also why you've seen um, Charles Schwab recently say that they're going to get rid of all fees to uh, to to do trading, you know, to buy stocks, sell stocks on Charles Schwab. And now you see this Morgan Stanley E Trade acquisition now. This makes sense to me from a Morgan Stanley standpoint, which is the fact that. All of your customers, your investors are being courted by all these fintechs that are now giving them free tools, right? And, and trying to woo them to, you know, put a little bit of money into Robinhood, right? Or SoFi or Wealthfront or fill in the blank fintech. Um, and so Morgan Stanley needed to basically adopt the same strategy, which is I'm going to go buy this. It's basically a, it's a linear tech company. Um, they are not a platform company. They are helping you trade, but that's just a tool and service, right? There is no producer in that equation. So E-Trade is not a platform company, just like Charles Schwab is not a platform company, just like Interactive Brokers is not a platform company. These are linear tools. The investment platform in the New York Stock Exchange slash ICE or NASDAQ, those have consumers, those have producers, those do have network effects. Those are platform companies. They are both in plat, uh, ICE and NASDAQ. Um, E-Trade and Charles Schwab, Interact Brokers, they're not in plat. They are not platform companies. These are uh, linear tech-enabled services, basically, right? 
used to have to go to a human uh, investment broker or banker, uh, broker, trade stock broker to, uh, to trade stocks for you. And they, and, and now you can basically do it for free. So Morgan Stanley said, you know, I need to bring this in house because otherwise, you know, my customers, my clients are being wooed by these fintechs. And this is basically a, a, um, unfortunately for the, for the incumbents, it, it's really a, a race to the bottom at this point. Um, you're only going to have now that these fintechs, many of them are unicorns, many of them have been able to raise a lot of money and they're not profitable. And this trend has continued despite the WeWork debacle in the fall of 09 uh, or 2019 rather. So the incumbents are going to have to continue to basically buy tech product companies that have tech enabled services or products or features that their clients like and give them away for free and roll them into the package because that's essentially what all the fintechs are doing. And it's just a race to the bottom. Who's going to basically open up the best features and functionality and products faster is going to, is, is, is who is going to make a stickier proposition for the investor, for the client to want to use that tool. Um, that doesn't sound like a really great business model and you're right. Cause it's not what, what these companies should be trying to do and and so far have have probably failed to do is figure out how to find that supply side um that supply side network effect how do they embrace that platform model how do you create a moat uh an ecosystem that is defensible because as we've seen in any in any industry or business whether it's platform or not technology is commoditized right if if your business and the differentiator in your business is that you have a better tool or product um that's not going to last right the power is in the ecosystem and we've seen that that thesis proven for over the past now 20 plus years so how do you find a supply side network effect in the investment world now that is really the trillion dollar question. Um, and we've seen a lot of companies kind of try this from different approaches. One interesting example of this was a company called Quantopian, where they were trying to open up tools um, and they had received $250 million from SAC, uh, Stephen Cohen's uh, multi-billion dollar, 0.72 asset management, multi-billion dollar hedge fund uh, kind of legend, Steve Cohen. So they gave him a quarter billion dollars, which is like pennies to Steve Cohen um, to say, hey, how can you open up tools for quant traders to uh, build their algorithms and, and, and uh, kind of build their theses on Quantopian? And now we're going to take then they opened up a fund to third party investors to let them put money into a fund that now these um, part time third party producer quant traders could spin up strategies around. And they actually just announced that they're changing the strategy. The fund really hasn't done well and they're returning uh, investors money back. So that's not a good sign. Um, but the thesis was this is, hey, how could I go to the people doing the work inside of a quant hedge fund, which are the traders, the mathematicians, uh, you know, the quants that are coming up with the with the investable theories and um and then building basically algorithms around that. And how could I put money against those those quants to monetize their investment insights. Could I kind of decouple the hedge fund model um, and just go straight to the actual quants that are kind of doing the work and creating the theses? Ultimately, it didn't work. Uh, I interviewed John Fawcett, the CEO, a couple of years ago when they were kind of uh, just getting out of the gate with Quantopian. But 
you know, that's one example of a company that was trying to build supply side network effect by going straight to the quants, by kind of going and, and, and trying to disintermediate the traditional hedge fund model, which takes a two and 20 comp, which is the best comp structure literally on the planet. You get paid 2% for the assets under management, and then you take 20% of all the money that you earn uh, uh, and, and, and the, the, the return that you provide to investors. It's an unbelievable model. Basically what that means is if you have a billion dollars under management, you're taking in $20 million before you open the door every morning, right? You're taking in $20 million in revenue just because you've raised a billion dollars in investor money. Even if you lose their money, you still make $20 million. And to manage a billion dollar hedge fund, you can do that with like five people no problem, right? So anyway, and then if you make them money, let's say you make them $100 million, now you keep $20 million. So you make $40 million for yourself. It's a fantastic business model if you can pull it off. So basically Quantopian was saying, well, hey, this is an egregious compensation model, which it is. Um, could I go to the quants and just now let the quants who maybe don't know how to go and raise money from institutional uh, investors and, and, and have those relationships, could I go straight to the people that have the brain and the investment strategy and now connect them to money? And that was the consumer on Quantopian's platform model. Didn't work out that way. Now I think Quantopian is going to become more of an enterprise tool um, to hedge funds and, and different folks. So how do you find supply side network effects in the investment world? Great question. That is the thing that I think, you know, people are ultimately trying to find. And it's a tough one. Now, I do know where there is a supply side network effect in the world of lending, which can dovetail and overlap with the world of investing. But, you know, it's not a one for one, but there is overlap there. And that's what's really interesting about this Lending Club Radius Bank acquisition. If you think about Lending Club, Lending Club is also in Platt. Lending Club is kind of like a 1.0 marketplace, right? It's basically saying, hey, you know, give me information about the loan you want. And I now have a network of all these third party lenders. And then they're going to kind of refer you to a bunch of third party lenders or they're going to give your information to third party lenders and they get paid. I don't know. Call it like five or ten bucks per referral to the third party lender. And that's pretty much where it stops. Right. That core transaction, if you think about it from consumer, someone wanting a loan to the lender the producer, they're not really going end to end. It's more of a referral engine, hence kind of a 1.0 marketplace, right? Radius Bank acquisition, this is enter 2.0 marketplace for Lending Club. And I think this is fantastic. Um, so there's a couple really interesting quotes from here. So so this is their CEO. Adding the capabilities of a bank charter to Lending Club Mix really changes the game, both in terms of what we can do for our customers and what we can do for our shareholders. Here's what Lending Club has basically done is they have now said, hey, I'm going to go buy this digital bank. This digital bank has APIs. And this digital bank already has connections into a lot of these fintech lenders, right? So they instead of having to now compete against the fintech lenders lending club is turning the fintech lenders into their producers right they're turning them into uh, 
producers that can lend to the consumers on Lending Club. And here's how this can work. Lending Club's long-term vision is to become what it calls a marketplace bank. That means pursuing a platform strategy, attracting both buyers and sellers and providing transaction integration and processing capabilities, right? Is there a winner-take-all dynamic in, in lending? Absolutely, there is. Why do you need to go through you know, Lending Club 1.0 model or, any, or you go trying to get a loan from any bank, you fill out their loan application. God, that's a pain. Now they run your credit. Oh, now you want to go get five different quotes to see if five different banks will lend to you? Well, now you just got five hard pings on your credit profile. Wow, that's not good. So the whole process is broken. Enter Lending Club 2.0 Marketplace, Radius Bank Acquisition. I go through one application process, the Lending Club application process. That data is now exposed in an anonymized fashion to a network of third-party fintech lenders, which Radius Bank already has API integrations with. Okay, With Radius Bank's APIs and fintech relationships, Lending Club takes a big step forward towards becoming a multi-line platform, not just a multi-line bank. So now... These fintech, these fintech lenders, they can lend money way better than traditional banks can. Honestly, traditional banks are not that good at lending money. Fintech lenders are much more progressive in their underwriting models and can use different data sources and are just able to iterate more quickly than a big regulated bank. Okay. So now I give Alex's loan application out to five or 10 different fintech lenders. What does it matter? I only get one hard ping on my credit profile, but now I'm presenting this information as the platform to say 10 different fintech lenders. And now Alex gets the best deal because Alex is going to be presented with, I, I could be instantaneously, how many of those 10 banks want to lend to me or my business or whatever, you know, personal loan, small business loan, whatever it is. And those fintech lenders are now going to compete on the interest rate or the term or the amount, the things that matter to me, the consumer. Because now what you're doing is what, what marketplaces do, right? You are having one centralized uh, meeting point. You're now forcing the producers to compete against each other. And you're driving that value down to the end customer, which is the, the borrower. Now, it gets even better. For the fintech lender, why would they do this? Because when you look at the CAC, when you look at the cost of customer acquisition for a fintech lender, it's astronomical. That's why you see SoFi spending $400 million to sponsor a stadium. I mean, it's bonkers, the amount of money that these fintechs are paying. So instead of, instead of um, the fintech lender having to, say, spend two or $400 or whatever the CAC is, probably could be more, for, uh, you know, serving an ad or, 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 or getting a referral to Alex, right? Or, or um, the kind of traditional way of acquiring Alex. Now, what Lending Club can do with its business model is it can now start to take uh, points on the transaction. Maybe Lending Club takes the origination fee on the loan right? Maybe they take 2% origination fee on the loan. That money is coming from the fintech lender. It's not coming from London Club's balance sheet. And now with the banking capabilities of Radius, now what they can do is say, hey, Alex, you need to have a checking account with, with Lending Club. 
And every uh, month or week or whatever the you know repayment terms are, we are going to debit this checking account at the lending at your lending club checking account. Now, lending club can go end to end, not just in the um, initial disbursement of money. So now all that money can go from the fintech lender into my lending club checking account. But now all the repayments and the servicing of the loan, because, oh, by the way, fintech lenders aren't really good at collections or repayments. They don't have that infrastructure, right? Only the really big ones now can actually have kind of a a pseudo checking or savings account solution. But there are so many, uh, you know, nine figure funded fintech lenders that don't have the scale of really the big fintech lenders. They just don't have that infrastructure. They are going to swoon over being able to partner with Lending Club and Radius Bank. Many of them already probably are integrated with Radius Bank's APIs. So now Lending Club helps with repayments. Maybe they take a 1% servicing fee to help with repayments on the loan that Lending Club is earning fees on but none of that capital is coming from Lending Club's balance sheet. This is Lending Marketplace 2.0. And now let's take one big giant step back and you say to yourself, hmm, is the lending industry a winner-take-all industry? And the answer is, absolutely it is. Why do you need to have hundreds of different banks? Why do you need to... Why can't you centralize all of this? Why can't you have one central meeting point, disperse my information to a bunch of third-party lenders, let them compete over me, the borrower, drive that value down to me, the borrower, have the best capabilities to do repayments and collections and all these kinds of things. You don't need hundreds of banks. You don't need hundreds of fintech lenders that are all trying to own the customer-borrower relationship. It doesn't need to be that way. That's just the way it has been in the past. That's the way that it also has been with the um, credit check system, right? Has also helped that right now. Everyone, every bank wants to do their own credit check. Lending Club is going to bring that verification, bring that credibility to say, hey, you know what? This data is accurate. I'm going to vouch for this information for the credit check for this information. Fintech lender, you're going to make your decision off of this. You don't need to go run a separate credit check on Alex's report. This is going to be a game changer. And you are this to me, if I'm a bank, this is easily the most worrisome fintech platform disruption coming into the industry. This is the bulk of my revenue. If I'm a bank, where do banks make their money? Half of it's on fees and and different things. The other half is on interest for lending. And lending is a winner take all dynamic. And Lending Club has made a genius move to move into this model and really reinvent themselves, go from really a 1.0 marketplace to a 2.0 marketplace. I think they're going to do very well with this. I mean, look at the market cap of Lending Club. It's a billion dollars. It's not been, it has not been doing well. It's been, it was at a hundred bucks. It's now at 11 bucks. Five years ago, it was at a hundred bucks. And This has been a move that they've needed to make for a while. We'll see if they can execute upon this. I think the one thing that the banks have going for them is that lending clubs scale is not what it used to be, right? Uh, So their digital demand. If you're a big bank, 
you could follow on to this and I think you could beat Lending Club at its own game just because you have much more scale, you have much more throughput, uh, but you got to act quickly. So this is a really, really exciting uh, platform shift that, that we're going to follow here. Continuing on with the banking uh, theme here. So banks have actually done a very good job of embracing platforms. We've seen two really good examples. One is Zelle. And I want to give a little bit of the backstory on Zelle. So um, we published a post uh, maybe in 2018, really going deep into where did Zelle come from? Zelle is the payment platform competitor to Venmo. Zelle has way more volume than Venmo has. Zelle has 50 plus partner banks now using Zelle and integrating them into their different products. And it, it basically makes you, lets you make peer-to-peer -peer payments for free, seamlessly and easily like Venmo owned by PayPal. Now, how did Zelle come into fruition? Well, we, we did a deep dive on this in 2018. What we really spoke about is really a handful of some of the biggest bank CEOs that got together. Um, I asked Brian Moynihan, CEO of Bank of America, about it. And it was basically a conversation with a few of the big bank CEOs. You had about 20 bank CEOs that were initially in on basically a joint venture to go and buy a company called um, Early Warning Services. And Early Warning Services and uh, Clear Exchange were basically combined in 2015. Um, historically, early warning services still does, offers fraud detection, risk management, and, auth and authentication services to banks. So this was kind of like a intermediary service. All the banks were already using this banking solution anyway, already in their businesses. And then they decided to also now spin out the functionality that they had around providing payments and remittances into a peer-to-peer -peer payment platform product solution called Zelle, right? So they basically all pooled their money together. They took control of this business. They launched a competitive payment platform called Zelle. And then you had 20 of the biggest banks basically saying, hey, we're going to all use this solution. Then you had now another 30 plus banks have piled on and also use the solution. And this is just a way to join forces and adopt the same tool, uh, spread the cost of this functionality across all the banks, build enterprise value if you were one of the early shareholders in the business. Um, but you have a separate tech team, tech business entity focused specifically on this platform model. And now it'll be interesting to see how well Zelle can try to monetize uh, the payment platform. We've seen Venmo, for example, say, hey, if you want to have this money in your bank account instantly, we will take 10 basis points and, and cap it out at a fee of 10 bucks. Uh, or you can wait the standard one to three days for this money to appear in your bank account. It'll be interesting to see how much flexibility Zelle has to actually try and monetize and build a business model beyond what they have today. I think that's where some of the friction and bureaucracy that comes from a massive JV structure that Zelle has um, will show signs of in, in terms of the long-term trajectory for the business. But just taking the business uh, at face value as a payment platform that basically banks say, hey, well, now we have a competitive solution to Venmo and PayPal. Yeah, this is a win. This served that purpose. Uh, we will see if Venmo is able to kind of out innovate on the business model side um, over the long term. But certainly, 
in a few year period of time, getting a business to scale in less than five years in a kind of cooperative JV approach, this is a great example. Another example of this is Symphony. So basically, Symphony is a kind of chat collaboration tool that bankers and traders are using. So a number of years ago, Bloomberg reporters got caught red-handed. Some of the reporters were snooping on what some Goldman traders were doing on the Bloomberg terminal. Big no-no. Goldman was not too happy about this. And so Goldman led a consortium of other uh, investment banks to go and basically um, invest in this business called Symphony. So Symphony was started in 2014. And since then, they've raised $460 million. They just raised a Series E uh, in June of 2019, another $165 million. Standard Chartered Bank was one of the lead investors. But if we look at all their investors and go way, way, way back, what you'll see here is... So Series A, look at all these. Series A, look at this. BNY Mellon, Jefferies, Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, Citibank, BlackRock, Goldman, Nomura, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, HSBC, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch. Okay. And then in the follow-on, you had Societe Generale, the big French bank, UBS. Right? All the big banks that are doing trading and have have their own internal teams said, hey, you know what? We want to try and put a dent into Bloomberg's armor. Bloomberg is a platform business, private. It's absolutely a um, platform monopoly in the world of financial services and trading. And really, their platform dynamic, again, similar to E-Trade, it's not in the trading function. That's just a tool. Their platform dynamic is in the collaboration, the messaging, the network and ecosystem of you need, need to be, if, you know, if you're a trader that's kind of worth your salt, you need to have a Bloomberg terminal starting at $20,000 a year um, per seat. And then you can do deals on there. You can interact with each other. You can, you know, it's kind of a club and a membership uh, partially. So there's also a development platform model around data and tools and software that now have built onto the Bloomberg terminal. So there are data providers that you can now buy additional data packages through the Bloomberg terminal and then have that complement the data in the Bloomberg terminal. There's also software tools, development platform that will build on top of the Bloomberg terminal. So you kind of have now, again, platform conglomerate status where you don't just have the messaging and collaboration platform, but you now have the maker platform as well um, of, of third parties creating either data products or software products on top of the Bloomberg terminal. So Bloomberg, absolute platform monopoly. Symphony, a collaboration platform, says it right here, that was basically built to try and combat and, and put a dent in Bloomberg's armor. You can see the CEO, uh, David, here actually saying that almost verbatim about their mission. Now, where else does this come into play in the world of financial services? Oh, there is this thing called the London Stock Exchange, also in Platt, okay, just like NASDAQ and ICE also in Platt. Remember they said last year they're going to go and buy Refinitiv. Refinitiv was a uh, a spin out from um, from Blackstone. So they they said, "Hey, we want to go buy Refinitiv. Refinitiv is basically the data provider. It's basically a competitive data data provider to Bloomberg. Is it a platform business? No. Is the LSC a platform business? Yes, around investment, right, and trading. 
Okay. So now they say, Hey, I have investment. I have traders. I have, I have businesses that are going public through the LSC, raising money. It's an investment platform. Now I'm going to bring the data. I think what we spoke about is really what they need to go and do is buy a company now like Symphony. So I think it looks like this deal is going to close. I think them buying a company like Symphony, now you need that collaboration dynamic, right? You need that, um, that service that enables all the people using the refinitive data and making trades. And LSE has access to that customer base, clearly, because they're the LSE. This, to me, would be the next play. But I don't think just buying refinitive allows you to actually... Um, kind of take down Bloomberg. I think you need that collaboration platform, which is key, key, key um, part of, of the Bloomberg platform model. So Symphony is um, a great example of a bunch of banks coming together, creating a consortium, not acquiring the business out, out, outright, but certainly having a bunch of preferential uh, rights in the amount of investment that they put into this with Goldman leading the charge to bring and, and kind of take uh, that traffic and that business away from Bloomberg and bring it on over to this and getting in at the Series A. So they've created a lot of uh, enterprise value. Now they've provided a tool that they can all use. And uh, there's definitely strong platform dynamics in this business. So um, in other news, there's an article here in the New York Times about Europe is overrun by foreign tech giants and wants to grow its own. Okay, we've spoken on the show before about how Chinese tech protectionism has absolutely helped China nurture a very strong and vibrant tech community. Six of the 10 largest tech companies in the world are Chinese. They have a number of large tech platform monopoly businesses, and there's a number of unicorn companies. We've, we've covered, we cover Chinese tech companies a lot. And by China basically not allowing U.S. or really any foreign tech companies at all to enter the Chinese market, or if they do, they have to have forced technology transfer and all these things. Anyway, they basically prevented any of that stuff from coming in, and they created an environment for Chinese tech startups to go and fill that void, fill that vacuum themselves. And now when those companies get big or go public or those founders get rich, now they invest back in other startups. Now you have VC firms and you get the whole cycle compounding upon itself to have a very strong, robust tech community in China. We've spoken about in Europe where Europe's had basically a lost generation because they don't really have a tech community and all the US tech companies went into Europe and have just, you know, kind of been running the show. You have some some small examples, right? Uh, like European platform companies in Plat comprise less than 10% of all the companies in Plat. Um, Chinese platform companies are probably around 20%. So, and it would be more if they had the right ADR status, the right reciprocity status with US exchanges, but they don't because we can't see their data to really validate if they are a platform or not. But most likely some of these would be, but they don't share enough information for us to concretely say it is. So anyway, the 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 EU is trying to think about how do they do this and and these kinds of things. Um, obviously, tech protection protectionism is something that we've seen work, but on the other side of this. 
with the amount of regulation that the EU has created, we've spoken about GDPR, for example, as helping large tech monopolies like Google and Facebook and hurting basically everyone else. The everyone else bucket includes, we've spoken about British Airways and Marriott getting huge fines. Basically, British Airways and Marriott paid bigger fines on GDPR than any of the tech monopolies did. GDPR, these different tech regulation that that the EU puts into place, they apply to all of the tech startups in Europe. And this is the problem. This is what we've said on the show is tech regulation should really just be focused on the large tech monopolies, the large platform conglomerates. And it needs to be company by company, right? These companies are so big and so different. You can't have one law that just magically fixes the whole situation. You need to have company by company, very targeted, specific regulation. And if you don't do that and you just create these ever expansive laws, what you're now doing is you're hurting the tech unicorns, the tech startups that need to also comply with these laws. Because once you're a large tech monopoly, you have the money and the resources to comply with the laws better than everyone else, as we've seen with GDPR. Unless you're the EU and you want to claw back provisions and carve outs and, and, and fundamentally rethink how you go about regulating big tech. I don't see any way for them to deliver on this. It's a great premise. Hey, we need to have our own tech community in Europe. Yeah, you're right. But how do you do that is the other story. And I don't think that they're going to be able to go back and say, hey, let's look at things like GDPR. Let's look at all these other laws that we've passed over the past handful of years and now exempt European tech startups from these laws. That would be step number one. Before you start passing new stuff, just fix this stuff you've already passed, which is doing a lot of harm to any tech companies trying to operate in, 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 the, in the region. So if you've now created something that harms tech companies from operating, if you take away that harm from your European tech company, tech startups, okay, well, that's net net a positive. Um, kind of wonky way to think about it and wonky way to get there. But hey, that's, you know, that could be the European way. Just regulate the hell out of everyone and just exempt the European tech startups. Okay, magic. Um, I doubt they'll take my uh, <laughs> my uh, advice on that one. So another topic we've spoken about, basically, don't be like McDonald's. We've spoken about how large incumbents, uh, large traditional enterprises that have a lot of intrinsic assets like McDonald's helped build um, Uber Eats on its back. Another example, I was, I, you know, I was walking around the other day and I saw these things. Well, you know, you're walking around, you see Domino's cars everywhere, right? And you say to yourself, oh, what's another example of a large traditional incumbent business in the food space, you know, like the food trend here, that literally has delivery in I don't know what 80, 90% of America with their own delivery cars, their own fulfillment system door to door. Oh yeah. Domino's and fill in the blank. However many other, you know, pizza chains there are Papa John's and whatever else you're ordering pizza from. Um, Their whole thing has been delivery, right? Domino's is known for, you get the little status checker, and all this kind of stuff. Why didn't Domino's say, hey, well, what if we would deliver other stuff besides pizza? Maybe they don't need to deliver competitors' pizza, but why don't we deliver 
other complementary products like Chinese food or Thai food or I don't know, fill in the blank, other product, you know, hamburgers. I don't know. Stuff that's not competitive. But that's a great example about how when you want to think about how do you have value for a platform, maybe you don't even, if you're Domino's, you don't need to own Uber Eats or uh, Delivery Hero or, you know, and any of the uh, dominant food delivery platforms. But even if you partnered with them and you said, hey, I'm going to give you delivery capabilities in 80 or 90 percent of rural, you know, suburban America overnight. Now it's hard to say that, but rewind the clock two or three years ago. You know, why weren't there deal teams? They literally have teams and teams of deal teams. Like these people do deals. This is their job. Why isn't the deal team saying, hey, you know, we think that delivery platforms are going to be a dominant thing. Two or three years ago, it's 2020 today. So this would be like 2017, 2018. You could still get these deals two or three years ago when there was five different delivery platforms. There's still four delivery platforms today. You go do a deal and you say, hey, Everyone kind of needs a little bit more fulfillment capability. Everyone needs a little bit more supply. Um, these platforms would do deals. I guarantee for equity, you put some, maybe put some capital in and now you own a piece of the dominant delivery platform in the industry. But I can tell you that it's not going to be sustainable for all these pizza delivery restaurants to sustain their own delivery business as delivery platforms, which are restaurant agnostic, get more scale. It's going to become harder and harder and harder for Domino's and Pizza Hut, et cetera, to have delivery as kind of that killer differentiator. This is now going by the wayside. This was a linear service that is going by the wayside of a platform, delivery platform. And I don't know what they're going to do. They're going to be in a tight spot with this. But they could have probably had, you know, at least uh, five to 10 percent, maybe more, depending upon how early they got around to it to say, hey, we're going to put our eggs into this basket. These guys are going to now be the number one player in the space. They're going to get there faster. We're going to have special provisions or rights or, hey, if it's just Domino's on this food delivery platform and Pizza Hut can't come on and we get equity and we get better data than anyone else and we get less fees, that's a win. Okay, last topic is we've had some uh, kind of uh, corporate innovation folks. What are kind of some tools? And when you talk about how do you go spin up a business in, in a couple of weeks time? And, you know, what are key tools that I could give to my teams? Um, and, and what are those those buckets for different tools that I'd want to think about? Right. So there's about seven or eight buckets that we would outline for key tools, foundational tools that you'd want to give to every kind of corporate innovation team that's trying to do hacks, prototypes, spin up and validate new business models in, uh, in very compressed periods of time. So the first one, this is a no brainer, it's communication tools. Everyone knows of Slack or now Microsoft Teams is out there. Actually, I think Microsoft Teams might technically be bigger than Slack, but you need to have Fast, easy communication, different groups that you can communicate about, different projects or different businesses that you're trying to spin up. This is a no-brainer. Um, now, the next bucket would be, how do you manage all your team and company knowledge in one place? Um, Microsoft has some tools for this. You know, uh, Google Drive has some tools for this. Notion's another really good tool if you want to look at um, kind of aggregating all of this knowledge in one place. 
Airtable is, is kind of the third bucket. Um, there's some other companies that are kind of doing things like Airtable, but we really love Airtable. It's basically like a spreadsheet, but with the power of a database to organize just about anything that you would want. Um, so you can use spreadsheets to do things with numbers or financial models or these kinds of things. You could do that. You could continue to do that in Excel, but basically everything else you can use Airtable for. You can set up forms. You can manage workflows. You can do... Um, a whole slew of different integrations into Airtable, and there's I'm going there's more on this in terms of bucket number seven about a great tool that you can integrate with Airtable. So we use Airtable a lot. What's a good task and project management tool? There's a bunch of these. Um, we use Asana a lot for that kind of work. What are you know, what are you going to use for your spreadsheets, your presentations, your documents, your email, your, your calendar? I mean, it's basically Google Drive, Google Docs, or Microsoft Exchange. We actually use both. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then what are great dashboards, right? How can you, in a very simple, consolidated way, provide easy access to KPIs, have everyone stay on track of what they need to deliver upon and what their progress is. We use Gecko boards for this, throw it up on a TV monitor in the office. It's a really great way to keep teams motivated and rallying around um, different goals and KPIs. Seventh bucket, which might be the most powerful bucket of all of them, is Zapier. So when I was talking about Airtable and Slack and all these other things, right? Zapier is kind of like that connective tissue that you can now set up triggers for, right? So, you know, if this data is put into Slack, have it go into Airtable. And, you know, if this thing is mentioned here or if this happens, have it go into um, Airtable or out of Airtable, right? So Zapier is that connective tissue or when we want to do things with Gecko boards, Zapier can help power that. Zapier can integrate into all these different tools, help you set up functions that are now automated. It can help you um, with what you're doing with uh, email management and your different numbers. And all of these different tools can now have, can, can benefit from the power of, of kind of different Zapier integrations. That's a really great tool. The last one is kind of optional. If you want a CRM, um, it, 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 that really just depends on the scale of whatever kind of hacks or, or prototyping you're doing. You know, how many customer or, or lead prospect information do you have to manage? If it's a decent amount of information, I'd recommend getting Salesforce. Um, Salesforce can be pricey and you got to get annual contracts and um, you don't necessarily have to get it for everyone. If you kind of just have some business development folks that are that are more focused on, you know, building demand or supply or both, um, you could kind of just get a few licenses for them. Depends on the size of the teal, size of the team and the scale at which they're operating. Salesforce you know, is another tool that we'll use on the CRM side. So, you know, I, let me give one example uh, with uh, with kind of how this can all come together. So if you want a Slack notification, um, let's say let's say you have a form set up using Airtable for any time a client requests something such as an appointment with you. By default, that request can go to a row on a spreadsheet or you might get an email confirmation. But what if you wanted more than that? What if you wanted a Slack notification of every request? 
and you wanted to add that as a task to manage, assign it to a specific or, or assign it to a specific person on your team or send a calendar invite to a teammate, as well as to the person submitting the form, right? Thank you for submitting. This is what Zapier can enable. It allows you to connect all the tools you use and automate processes without requiring any code. That's the other key plus, right? So in this specific example, Zapier connected Airtable, your email, your calendar, Slack, and your task management solution. Uh, there's no other tool on the market then we would recommend more than Zapier as that connective tissue to really help enable and, and take advantage of all the value that is kind of provided by each of these individual tools uh, on their own merits. So um, all of these tools that I'm recommending, let me preface this, there's no code involved, right? These are all tools that you can spin up. You don't need to have an engineer involved. If you obviously want something much more powerful and thorough with a lot more functionality, there's a bunch of other things that you can now uh, leverage code and have engineers help you roll out. But these are really great tools that you can hack things and get things going in a very quick period of time without needing code uh, to make them operational. So um, that's it for us today on Winner Take All. Thank you for joining and I'll talk to you tomorrow.